Good morning. Our Bible reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. You can find, you can refer to your Bible um, on page 1608 or on the screen. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Uh, well, in the last little while, I think we've all witnessed um, how just one moment in history uh, really does change the world. Um, think back to that moment at the end of, I think, 2019. Uh, where the first person who had somehow been infected with a brand new virus transmitted that virus to someone else. Just a few minutes, uh, but it's changed everything, hasn't it? And uh, the effects of those changes will be uh, going on for a long time. I reckon if you wanted to, if you kind of uh, had a bit, of ex a bit of time to do this, you could come up with the top 100 moments uh, that have changed our world. Quite easy to think of a few things like September 11, uh, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand kicking off World War I, uh, the bombing of Hiroshima, just a you know, top of your head sort of stuff. There's so many big events, aren't there, that have changed the world and the way we relate to it. I reckon as well, it'd be very easy to come up with the top 100 moments that changed our personal worlds, our personal lives. Uh, so for me, you know, meeting Karina for the first time, saying I do uh, a little bit later on. Not on the same day, it was many years apart. Uh, or when we heard the good news from TAFE that we would be able to meet here as a church. It was uh, life-changing for me in, in some ways. Now, I reckon if you came up with your top 100 lists of things that have changed the world uh, and the top 100 things that have changed your personal life, I reckon uh, both those lists would, of course, have very significant, uh, very transformative moments. And so what I'm about to say, I realise, is a big claim. Uh, the passage we've just read in Luke describes the biggest and most important world-changing event ever. Number one. The even, bigger claim, uh, the even bigger claim to make is that it should also come in on number one in every person's uh, list of things that have changed their lives. Big claim. Number one, the most transformative thing of all time. Now, that's true at one level with the flowing effects from the uh, resurrection historically as Christianity has spread around the world. I think it is genuinely hard to find, historically, a bigger influence uh, on our world, something longer-lasting with a wider impact than Christianity. Uh, that's, I think, uh, a good topic to explore for another day. Uh, but more than that, Jesus rising from the dead is life-changing uh, for everyone who encounters it. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, 
It means we all have that central moment uh, to peg our lives to. We have a foundation to build our lives on. We have a purpose. uh, And we have a confidence and a hope. Perhaps above all, assurance. Assurance that we have hope for eternity. As far as I can tell, there is nothing more important than eternity. Now, realize uh, not everyone today uh, here would be convinced that Jesus did rise from the dead as a historical event. Um, So, whether you're perhaps just a bit skeptical about that or you're just not quite convinced, uh, whatever it may be for you, firstly, it's really great you're here with us today. Um, We are very, very welcome. We do want to be a place where it's uh, relaxed and comfortable to be uh, to, to explore these things further. As we look today, and actually for the next few weeks, at the reports of Jesus' resurrection, I'll try and point out some of the reasons, uh, some of the evidence why we might believe this to be true. Uh, we want to actually all grow, don't we, in our confidence, uh, that, uh, in, our, in our convictions, that the resurrection um, is the best explanation for the fact that there was a missing body. The body wasn't there that Easter Sunday morning. The best reason I think we can say is because Jesus really rose from the dead. And that, that historical moment, does really change everything in our world and our lives. Now, just to find our bearings a little bit, uh, last week uh, we looked at, um, just before this, Luke told us all about Jesus' crucifixion. And if you have your Bibles there, it'd be great to keep them open and uh, flick back uh, just to the previous section, to the end of chapter 23. I'll just take us to a few little bits there to help us find our bearings and uh, orient us to what we've just read. At the end of chapter 23, uh, we see, uh, yeah, the very, very sad moment as Jesus dies, uh, verse 49. But all those who knew him, we read, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. So Luke tells us these women, they witnessed his death. And you can only imagine how horrible that would be. Uh, Just dear friends watching on this, this extraordinary event. Uh, Then from verse 50 in chapter 23, verse 50, Luke tells us all about Jesus' burial. He gives us the details. It's worth pointing out here, just uh, if you're wondering, Jesus' body would have been on that cross, uh, deceased, uh, for a number of hours, when you think about it. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, once Jesus had died, went to get permission to bury the body, uh, and then to actually come back and get the body down. Jesus was dead on that cross for some time. He's not someone who merely collapsed or, or fainted. He's very, very dead, uh, even at the point of being taken down from the cross. Uh, Verse 53, they wrapped Jesus' body in linen cloth uh, and they placed him in a tomb cut out from rock. Now, that's a pretty uh, normal sort of Jewish Jewish burial in that period, a bit different for us, of course. But what I want to point out is verse 55, Luke takes care to mention the women that witnessed his death. Verse 55, these women follow uh, Joseph and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. I want to point that out because as we get to chapter 24, we realize the, the women who, we, with their own, or, their own eyes, saw Jesus' death, they were there as his body was wrapped, and they saw the tomb he was laid in. Um, they head off to that tomb very early in the morning on that Sunday, a few days later, uh, with the spices they prepared to anoint his body. They are clearly expecting, aren't they, to find a dead body. These are not disciples who have some fanciful wish that, oh, Jesus might be alive when we get there. They're carrying spices to anoint his dead body. I mean, can you, can you imagine for a moment uh, going to a funeral and thinking, I wonder if the person who died will, will still be dead at their funeral? 
Such a strange thought, isn't it, to, to even uh, put onto this story? Of course not. It wouldn't cross our mind that someone might not be dead as we get to their funeral a few days later, like these women are doing. But how unsettling it would be uh, if you kind of to walk in their shoes uh, through these few moments, this early Sunday morning. Uh, perhaps the verse 2, they realise the stone has been rolled away. Perhaps a bit surprising, uh, but you know, not too alarming. It might just suggest someone else was there. Maybe one of the other disciples was there just paying their respects or something like that. But verse 3 is, you get closer and you actually look in and realise how disconcerting. If you're them, they entered and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It's kind of like uh, taking a bunch of flowers to uh, the burial site of, of a dearly, uh, dearly missed loved one who's just been buried. But you get there with the flowers and you realise the grave has been dug up, the coffin's there and it's open and it's empty. How strange, how disconcerting. I think you would triple check, wouldn't you, that you're in the right spot, check the cemetery, yep, right row, yep, all good. Which is, by the way, I think why Luke told us these women were there. They knew they were at the right tomb. They're not lost. They're not at the wrong tomb. As I was thinking about this passage a bit, I, I remembered a book I read as a teenager, or maybe a young adult. Uh, it's called The Case of the Vanishing Corpse. Uh, inspired my sermon title today. Here's a picture of the front cover. Uh, it's, it's well worth tracking down if you're ever able to find it. Take a note and uh, if you're looking up for good books to read. It's actually fun. Uh, it's an interesting and fun book. It's fictional in a sense. Uh, it's about a fictional private detective uh, set in, uh, yeah, around this event. Uh, he's hired by the authorities of Jerusalem, the Romans and the Jewish, Jewish leaders, to find the body of Jesus. Uh, so it's kind of imagining, what would the private detective do? How would he find out what happened to the body? Uh, it's good fun, and it's uh, well-written, and explores the historical event in quite a sensible way, I think. Remembering uh, the Romans and the Jews, who are uh, the leaders in the city, they really did want to squash the rumours that Jesus was risen. They had all the reasons you could think of to pull out the body if it was really there and put it on display and say, no, no, he's not risen, he's fully dead. They would have liked to have done that, I think. Uh, but in this book, uh, the fictional main character, the private detective, try as he might, he cannot find the body. And no one can find it. Uh, despite having all the power and all the resources, the body is simply not there. Now, it's a, a fun book if you're into that sort of thing. There are uh, more serious academic works done by uh, actual historians on this topic as well. Uh, as I wonder, what happened to the body of Jesus? Now, if you're someone who's uh, not sure about what to make about the resurrection, um, whatever else we might say about Jesus, the fact that his body was never found, um, even though there were people very motivated to find it, is, I think, one of the biggest problems to overcome if you're a skeptic. What happened to the body? I think that's a question from history that cries out for an answer. We see in this passage, though, that the disciples should have known. They should have known. Jesus had told them that this would happen, that he would rise again. Uh, and yet, the women get it so wrong. Uh, not to mention the rest of the disciples, they're not even there. Who knows where they are at this point? At least the women have turned out to give Jesus a decent burial, uh, perhaps to pay their respects. So I think it's actually worth reflecting on, just for a moment, on uh, whether the resurrection of Jesus... It's something we approach, uh, perhaps like the women in this story, assuming he's kind of dead. That is, have, has the resurrection of Jesus made a real difference in our life? Like, sometimes it might seem that we approach Jesus uh, in, with the same reasons that these women are going to the tomb. We like Jesus, uh, we perhaps want to honour him, 
and pay him our respects as a, as a good man, uh, perhaps by coming to church. Uh, we might have great reverence for a man who died in our place to save us. We might love Jesus as our Saviour. We like learning about his teaching and we think there's great wisdom. We have great reverence. You know, I've got no idea what motivates these women, of course, but perhaps they were there out of obligation. Uh, Jesus had been good to them and so perhaps they were obligated to do something good in return. Yeah, there's other sort of uh, thought experiments there, but my question is, are we relating to Jesus uh, in, their, in the same way that in their minds they are, that is, as if he's dead, a good man who's now gone? I've been reflecting on how that can happen for me, uh, and I suspect for others as well. Uh, we may be serving Jesus, Jesus uh, honouring him as we are able, perhaps even praying to him, but almost as if he was still in the tomb. A good man, remembered well and honoured. Now, it's a good thing that Luke doesn't leave us there. Uh, He tells us what happens next. And this is critical for us, isn't it? To think about the resurrection more. If we want to relate to Jesus, not as a dead saviour, but as a living Lord and as a friend. Now, spare a thought for these uh, these poor, poor women. Uh, They're good friends, their saviour, the one they thought was the king of Israel. They just witnessed his execution. That's surely, I would imagine, the worst moment of their lives. And possibly very nerve-wracking as well, if you're a disciple, uh, seeing your leader being killed like this, the obvious question is, well, what if they come for me next? I'm sure these women have had a very, uh, very uh, bad night's sleep for the last couple nights. And here they are, one early morning, and they can't find the body. Verse 4, as they're scratching their heads, trying to work out what's going on, like, did we miss the email or something? Is there something we should have known? Boom, from nowhere. Suddenly, almost blinding lights, two men in clothes, we're told, gleaming like lightning, uh, stood beside them. Now, if you kind of, your nerves are a bit frayed on edge, this is a terrifying moment, isn't it? After the, after the couple of days these, these ladies have had, what a, what a moment. Angels, angels appear. Now, I realise uh, for a lot of modern people, uh, this report of angels doesn't make the story more believable, does it? It seems to make it less believable. Uh, we don't tend to think about the supernatural realm in these kind of ways. I get that, I get that, although the story we're reading here about Jesus is about a guy who's been dead for three days, he's been lying on cold rocks for two nights, and the weather's about the same as it is here in Adelaide this time of year, cold at night, right? This body has been laying on cold rocks for two nights, of his own accord, with no medical attention, comes back to life, unwraps himself somehow, rolls away a stone and walks out. That's extraordinary, isn't it? That, what we're seeing with the resurrection of Jesus is surely a supernatural event. It's a supernatural event. God himself is involved in this. And if that can happen, well, angels are hardly a problem, are they? But uh, let's just treat this for a moment as if it were a historical cold case, if you like, the case of the missing body. Uh, Especially if you're a bit of a sceptic, I think, yeah, okay, leave the angels aside for one minute. What other evidence do we have before us? Um, I'm certainly no historian myself, Um, I'm a fan of history, but um, I've learned about the tools and techniques that historians use to sort out fact from fiction. Uh, There's all sorts of historical events that you want to know. Is it true? Is it kind of a bit of propaganda, what's going on? So historians have tools they can apply to any source to work out how credible or how realistic something is. Um, 
So a lot of historians, by the way, have done a lot of work on, on, on Luke, and I think there's a lot of confidence we can have coming to Luke as a great historical document. So what evidence do they, uh, do they point us to? Well, if you notice in this passage, Luke doesn't guess what happened to Jesus and his body. The many details he gives us are all from witnesses, people who have seen and experienced these events. If Luke had told us one morning Jesus has leapt up, ripped off his grave clothes and ran out of the tomb, it sounds like fantasy, doesn't it? Because no one sees it. There's no one there to see that moment. The details Luke gives us uh, are all witness accounts. It makes it sound more like a report of history than sort of fan fiction uh, or fantasy. Luke carefully reports details and only the details from the perspective of reliable witnesses. Well, how about those witnesses? Are they actually reliable? Or are they trying to pull off some sort of elaborate hoax or the disciples trying to con us? Well, uh, historians all the time use a tool called the criterion of embarrassment. Some of you might have heard of this, the criterion of embarrassment. Um, basically, the idea with this tool is um, you look at a story and you think this story is more likely to be true if it has embarrassing details about the main characters, the, those who are telling the story. So if I told you um, that I once heroically um, saved a surfer by sort of jumping in the water and wrestling a shark and, and punching it in, like, you think, oh, makes me sound a bit too good, doesn't it? And probably I wouldn't believe that without a bit more evidence. Fair enough, it never happened. If I told you another story that I was once eating a cookie while I was riding my bike and hit a parked car, I look a bit silly, don't I? And you think, oh, yeah, that's probably a story that is more likely to have happened, and yes, that's true. The criterion of embarrassment, you can kind of apply to any source and work out, yeah, is it more realistic or is it more reliable if it's a bit embarrassing? So have a look then at the disciples, not just in this story, but all through Luke. Uh, Jesus had told them regularly, I'm going to rise again. He says that a number of times, and they're all shocked. Oh, wow, he rose again. They don't look good at this moment, do they? They don't, they don't look particularly faithful or insightful. Um, you see here in, uh, in this passage, the male disciples are rude, aren't they? They're dismissive. They're hardly the noble disciples that they might want to paint themselves as for history. So there's the criterion of embarrassment. Take it to the next level. Um, in this time, in this culture, if you wanted to make up a story and to convince people it's true, you would need reliable witnesses somehow uh, to plant, plant evidence. This will sound odd to modern ears, uh, but back then, that meant the witnesses should be male if you want them to be reliable. Um, it's nothing to say uh, about you know, uh, the role of women in the culture at large, just to say that that was the way they assumed things should work. A reliable witness should be male. So, you might critique that as far as you'd like to, but if you're inventing a story like a resurrection, if you want people to believe that story, you'd want to make sure in your invention the first witnesses are male. It's very embarrassing, actually, for the case initially that the, the first witnesses are female. We've seen Luke, actually, though, he doesn't care about that. He just reports it as it is. It's a little bit embarrassing. The criterion of embarrassment works. Because it might have hurt their case initially, but as we look through the lens of history and use the tools that historians normally use, we see it makes the account far more likely, the witnesses far more likely. You also see that Luke here provides names and basically addresses of everyone involved. We've got Joseph, where's he from? Arimathea. Got Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, they're all from Galilee. And of course, we have Peter, who uh, by the time Luke wrote this was a very well known public figure. Now, why do these names matter? Uh, 
most people would say that Luke wrote this work some 40 or 50 years after these events. Uh, for us, that sounds like quite a long time, but uh, back then, that was actually quite a quick turnaround. Uh, this is a period where most people were illiterate, so reading and writing didn't make a lot of sense for the average person. Uh, and in fact, stories we transmitted mostly orally and quite reliably. 40 to 50 years is actually very quick uh, in the ancient standard of reporting. Uh, why I think this matters, that Luke gives us names and uh, details of people, is that if you were the first people to read Luke's account, some 40 years afterwards, um, you could realise the implications of what this means if it's true, but then you could go and find out for yourself. You could go to Arimathea and see if Joseph is still alive. You could meet the people who knew him, maybe his children are still there, and you could find out for yourself if his testimony held up or whether he changed his story later in life. Um, I was talking to Matt Lehman uh, about this passage. Uh, for those of you who haven't met Matt, he's one of the other pastors who will be involved here at Tonsley. Uh, he's preaching this morning at a different church. Uh, he's actually preaching on this passage, which is why we were talking about it. Um, Matt was just sort of speculating, say so this gap is, is about 45 years, let's just take an average, 45 years between uh, Easter and Luke's account being written. Take that by today's standards, 45 years ago from today is 1977. 1977, doesn't actually feel that long ago. Uh, I wasn't born then, but still, it's not that long ago. Now, just play a little game. Does anyone know uh, who, someone, someone famous who died in 1977? Any trivia buffs there? Elvis Presley, the king. Uh, what a coincidence. We have someone, they call the king, who also died in 1977. There he is. I went a bit nuts with that. We've got a new screen. I wanted to put all the photos up this week. Um, I think it's a good comparison for us uh, as well, because some people claim, didn't they, that Elvis didn't die, or he's, he's still alive and playing gigs somewhere. Um, my point, though, is this, is this is not that long ago. Uh, if you wanted to find out for yourself if Elvis really didn't die, uh, if he's still alive somewhere, if it was a hoax, if you cared enough about that for the way it impacted your life, you could go, couldn't you? You go to America, you could speak to the coroners, or if they're still there, you could go through the original records yourself, uh, you could speak to the family who saw the body, uh, those who claim to see him. You could, you could try and work out and weigh up the evidence for yourself. Luke gives us the details to do that. Luke gives us the details so his first readers can have great confidence. These, these accounts are reliable. Go and find Joseph. Go and find Mary. Ask for yourself. Now, as history records for us, uh, Peter and the other 11 disciples, they never changed their story. Uh, despite it costing them personally a huge deal, uh, they all stuck to the same story, that Jesus is risen. Uh, we'll see this in coming weeks. They actually met the risen Jesus. They talked with Him, they ate with Him, they touched Him, and they kept testifying that Jesus has risen till their dying day. In fact, nearly all of them uh, met a, let's call it a premature dying day because they kept talking about the risen Jesus. Now, just pause there and let's put it all together. We have a missing body, uh, it's never been found, when all the powerful people who wanted to should have done so, should have found it. We have reliable witnesses who had no reason, no self-interest in reporting a resurrection to Jesus. And we have Luke himself, a, a careful historian, giving us the details we need. I find this all, and there's far more to say, but I find this a very compelling uh, case to put forward that that first Sunday morning, the best explanation we have for these facts is that Jesus has truly risen. For the sceptic, uh, the challenge has to be to sift through all this evidence and far, far more and come up with something even more compelling than that answer, a different explanation, if you will. Uh, 
We'll see in the coming weeks, there's, there's far more to say about the resurrection, other evidence to consider. And if you'd like some resources to dig through yourself and uh, some pointers on that, come and see me afterwards or make a note on your tear-off slip. Uh, we'd love to help you sort of think through these things further. Now, there's historical evidence, there's good historical evidence, but what I want to say today is actually the far better evidence and the most important thing to consider in all of this is not what historians say, it's not even what Luke's careful details record, the most important thing we have is what God says about it all. God provides not just a commentary, He provides an explanation for this event. So if you think about it, if just Jesus rose from the dead with no explanation, no reason given, it's bizarre, isn't it? It's very hard to believe someone just comes back to life. It doesn't make any sense. But when God Himself has communicated from heaven over the centuries leading up to this event, He's communicated long and, uh, from long ago that this is the long-awaited, the long-promised event that will change the world. God has given us a narrative, He's given us a story, and the resurrection fits in perfectly with what God has promised all along. This is good news for our world. Have a look from uh, verse 5, the end of verse 5, at what the angels say. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Daniel simply reminds these women of what Jesus said, his own words. And perhaps just make sure they get it's not some weird joke Jesus made. They're saying this must happen. It was necessary that Jesus be delivered, be crucified, and be raised again. It had to happen this way, as God had said all along, because it's God's plan to save our world, to save us. We have an entire Old Testament pointing, out, uh, pointing us to these events, that in His death, Jesus saves us. Uh, he pays with His blood the price for our sin. He pays the cost of our restoration and forgiveness. He did that with His perfect life, His perfect sacrifice. It's pleasing and acceptable to God like no other sacrifice is. And then in His resurrection, we see the fulfilment of God's many, many promises. That God would fix the problem of death once and for all, that great problem that plagues each one of us. God had promised to fix us and give us new life. He gives us a new way of living in His world by grace and with hope. And perhaps most of all, the resurrection shows us what God had promised all along, that He would provide a King, a King who would rule this world and reign over this world forever, a reign not interrupted by death. And that is what Jesus is doing now. He's risen to rule as the Lord, as the Messiah. Like I said earlier, I think we can sometimes find, our, find ourselves um, following Jesus as if, almost as if, uh, He were actually dead. Um, just that He's a good Saviour, worthy of our respects. And it is hard, isn't it? We don't have Jesus physically here with us. But just like the Apostles, we do have, we do have the words of God. And they give us every reason to believe and to trust and to look to Him as Lord. It's through God's Word through Scripture that we, we see these things and we can trust them, not through our own guesswork or our gut feeling. We can come to Jesus and we can know Him, we can know Him as our King, who is very much alive. So then what do we do? What do we do about this report that Jesus rose from the dead? What do we do about a living dead man, as it were? Well, to finish, I just want to make four suggestions and they all start with the letter R. 
after resurrection. It's a nice coincidence for a coincidence today. Four, four responses, all starting with R. The first response we see in this passage actually is to do research. To research. Have a look for ourselves, just like Peter did. He leapt up and he ran uh, with great enthusiasm, I suspect. He wanted to see for himself if this is true. When we last saw Peter uh, in Luke's account, he was weeping bitterly. Uh, Jesus had been arrested and Peter denied even knowing, knowing Jesus. What was going through Peter's mind as he raced towards that tomb? Yeah, on the screen, I've uh, picked some artwork this week. It's, again, we've got a screen, let's show some artwork. Um, this is from an artist called Eugene Bernard. It's from 1898. It's a picture of Peter and John, uh, as he imagines them, running to the disciples, make, uh, running to the tomb. Uh, it's a captivating image, and I think the second one is a zoom-in, I can't actually see, yep, zoom-in of Peter's face. Somehow, I think the artist captures some extraordinary emotions all in one, all tied up with Peter. He's kind of a mixture of fearful, perhaps, or anxious, uh, perhaps desperate that it might be true, maybe even ashamed of himself if it is. So many emotions as he runs to that tomb. What Peter goes on to find out is what countless others have. Not just an empty tomb with discarded grave clothes, but when he meets the risen Jesus later, he finds a Saviour who is full of mercy and grace, ready to forgive, ready to restore all those who come to him. That's the first R, research. Look into these things and going where the evidence leads us, just like Peter did. Uh, secondly then, repent. Repent. If we have been living with uh, Jesus basically as if he were still in the grave, uh, we'll need to change our lives, won't we? We'll need to make some changes. Do you hear that rebuke from the angels uh, in the tomb there? They asked, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus lives. He rules and he reigns as the Lord of all, the Lord of each life. I think this is uh, my story a little bit. I knew as a teenager Jesus as my saviour. Uh, I knew he died for my sins. I was very thankful for that. I knew about the resurrection and that was great. But I didn't live as if Jesus was truly raised from the dead that he was actually my Lord, my boss. At some point, uh, in God's kindness, he showed me that I was treating Jesus as a dead saviour, and not as my living Lord. Realising that and repenting of that and changing has been life-changing, and it continues to be something I need to keep coming back to, because, to be honest, I often find, too often, uh, I am living as if Jesus were only my saviour. So if you can relate to that, I'd invite us all today to, to repent of these things. The third R uh, in our response to the resurrection, the third R is to report it. Uh, again, taking a leaf out of the book of these brave women here, um, they were treated pretty poorly at first, weren't they, as if they were speaking nonsense as they reported it. But we had to let other people know that the grave was empty. Jesus has risen. Especially if we've done our research, uh, we might have ourselves well-equipped to help other people find the evidence themselves. Even if we haven't done much research, we can still report what the risen Jesus has done for our lives. And there's not too many better times of the year to do that than over Easter, as we uh, let other people know these good, good things to know about Jesus, great news, and to perhaps invite them along uh, doing a letterbox drop in our area. Uh, finally, and the fourth response, the fourth R, is to rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus has risen. He has conquered death, that great enemy of ours. His resurrection is the promise of our own resurrection and eternal life with Him. 
uh, the report we've read off today in this early Sunday morning, it shows us, doesn't it, that there is far more to life than what you know, the world around us would have, have us think. There is far more to life than the Australian dream of a happy family and a relaxed and prosperous retirement. There's far more than that. There is a king who rules from heaven. He brings salvation and eternal lives to our world. And we get to belong to that kingdom. We get to serve that king. What a great joy. Would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you have risen, that you are victorious over death, and uh, that you give us every confidence to face this world as people who are under your rule and reign and protection. Please forgive us of the times that we have treated you as if you were among the dead. And please instead fill us with great joy as we continue to reflect on uh, the power and the significance of your resurrection in our lives. Uh, Please keep this on our minds and continue to do our great work in our hearts as we reflect on these things through our week. We ask this for your glory. Amen.